Hi, my name's Ken Roberts. And I'm Janice Roberts. And we've been coming to WCPC for a little over a year now. In fact, we became members about two weeks ago. It was three weeks ago that we became members at WCPC. Yeah. Um, we were asked what the church has done to help us believe in the gospel. And for me, it has been through Bible study. I like being around other people, uh, hearing people who have, have good maturity in the word, uh, unpacking it, discussing it. That really works for me. How about you? And for me, it's the diving deeper into scripture during our weekly sermons at church. Um, I like being around the, the body of Christ, and it helps me have a better understanding of God's word. And now a reading from God's Word. 2 Corinthians 1, 1-7 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, praise and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. This, this is, is the, the word, word of, of the, the Lord. Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, thank you so much, Ken and Janice. Uh, it's wonderful to have you in our church. And um, there are so many new people in our church. Like, I, I'm relatively new, and Ken and Janice, like, immediately started serving on like the hospitality team so I thought they were here for years so that may be true of some of you if you're brand new here there are a ton of people that are brand new here and it's really delightful so thank you guys for uh, stepping in and, and serving immediately um, I want to underscore just really quickly Tommy's commendation to stay for this family meeting we try to keep them to 30 minutes or less there's family fun after the meeting um, it's kind of like if you get tickets to the Warriors game, uh, you go to the game, and this is kind of what we're doing here, but then you get to go backstage into the locker room. That's what the family meeting is. We're not the Warriors, uh, nor are the Warriors the Warriors this year, but we would love to have you stay uh, for a few minutes. Hey, they're coming. They're getting there. They're getting there. I'm a fan. Come on. This is spe I'm speaking out of, of great angst here, okay? Um, well, I already started with an icebreaker, but I now want to start with another icebreaker. It's, uh, it's one of those questions that you may get uh, passed along in a small group when you're getting to know one another, and it's the question, uh, could you tell us something that you're a little bit embarrassed by? And so I'm going to do that in front of hundreds of people this morning. Uh, I'm a little bit embarrassed that uh, I have never seen the 3D image in one of the magic eyes. If you remember these from my... I have never seen it, and I'm a little embarrassed by that, but I'll be standing with someone and say, well, see the pirate ship? There's like the mast and the sails, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's a swashbuckler of a ship, you know, or, or oh, you see the triple cheeseburger? Oh yeah, look at all the juicy pickles. Well, there are no pickles. You know, I've, I've never seen it. I've never seen it. Well, Scripture, with all the color, with all the texture, with all the books and the chapters and the verses and the words, sometimes I think it's easy to not see what we're supposed to see. 
Which is why when we got into January of this year, we said we want to spend seven weeks on seven introductions of seven letters to seven churches where Paul keeps keeping the main thing the main thing, showing us what to see. And we get it in repetition over and over and over again. And one of the main things in all of these introductions, and you see it right here in verse 1, is that this letter is written to the church of God. And I don't want to pass over that. The church belongs to God. It's not a civic club. It's not a social club. It's not a country club. It's not even a place where there's a gathering of, of like-minded individuals with a shared religious bent. It's people connected to God on mission together as a family. Imagine in a family system someone saying, well, you know, I really love my dad, but, but I never really show up for the family meals. I just stay in my room. I love my dad, but I'm not going to the meal. Well, the church, is, it's difficult for us to be connected to so many people in the church, but it's so important. In woodworking, you learn that so many of the cuts happen um, across uh, the grain or along the grain but sometimes you have to cut across the grain and it takes a particular saw it's a, it's a particular tool and the church is full of tools full of people that help you in your life uh, when they need to challenge you at times across the grain so that's a main thing in these letters that the church belongs to God and I've got three desires as we've gotten into this series and I've been putting them up front every week uh, one of them is that we would know who God is as a church and we spent the first couple weeks looking at that and then over the next three weeks one of the desires is that we would practice the rhythms of the Christian faith and right here in the center of the series we've been talking about the gospel and Tommy did an awesome job last week talking about how the gospel through Christ God rescues rescues us from our sin another way of putting it God saves us from ourself because Christians actually believe that every human problem is ultimately a symptom and the separation from God is the cause our loneliness our alienation fragile identities estrangement addiction betrayal depression even just malaise Treating the symptoms is crucial. We need intervention. We need therapy. We need friendship. But the fundamental illness is we as human beings have lost our connection to God. So some of you know that uh, two trips every week uh, or every year I take, uh, I'm on the City to City North American Leadership Team. And City to City is this ministry that trains church planters in some of the larger cities in North America. And uh, so we were, I was in Miami for a couple of days early this week. And one of the things we did one morning is we took a bus tour to visit some of the church plants. And we went in a community called Alapata, which is one of the more impoverished neighborhoods in, in Miami. And we heard from Pastor Mark. And Pastor Mark brought this uh, amazing Cuban-American woman up to share her story about this church. She had been uh, a woman beaten down by hard life, and then COVID happened. And as she got up to share, she said, you know, today marks the day I'm a thousand days sober. And she said, you know, I want you to know I wasn't a bad mom. I was a good mom. I wasn't a bad wife. I was a good wife. I wasn't a bad school teacher. I was a very good school teacher. But alcohol was taking all of those things away from me. And I needed intervention. I needed AA. I needed friendships. But I also know that I needed the church. And at this church, I found Jesus. 
and I knew I needed to be baptized. And perhaps that's you. Maybe you're on the verge of destruction or you're about to make a decision that could wreck your life and you may need therapy and intervention and friendship, but would you also connect it to the cause? You might be separated from your relationship with God. So the gospel, as we learned last week and through that story, not only rescues individuals, but today we look at how it is also the restoration of an entire world that is buckling under brokenness. Archimedes uh, famously said, uh, if you give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, I can move the world. And Christians believe that that lever is hope, right here in the introduction, verse 7, and the fulcrum on which to place that hope is the resurrection of Jesus. And we place our hopes on all sorts of things, all sorts of people and places and ideas. It might just be the next date or the next party or the next vacation or the next kid if I screwed this one up. Not you, Cammie. (laughs) But hope is unavoidable, isn't it? We place our hope in all sorts of things. Andrew DeBanco wrote this amazing book about 20 years ago called The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. And this is what he writes. He says, the heart of any culture is its hope. Hope is the way we overcome the lurking suspicion that all of our getting and spending amounts to fidgeting while we wait for death. Every culture must imagine some end to life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days and hours if we are to keep at bay the dim, back-of-the-mind suspicion that all human beings hold, that we are adrift in an absurd world. And Delbanco, in this book, he talks about really uh, the lever of hope placed in America on the fulcrum of three things. First, it was God, and then around World War I, World War II, it was nation building, it was hope on the nation. But in the 1960s, it really became placing all of our hope on the self. Yet hope on the self in a secular world which screams, this is all there is, can be incredibly toxic. So much more we're designed to do and to be. Yet having nothing that extends beyond our own epidermis can leave us fidgeting between anger and disappointment, anxiety and despair. Well, true hope, lasting hope, living hope, as Paul writes in all seven of these letters, is hope in something that is fully beyond this life. So I'll take this occasion as we get into this text to introduce a theological principle that might be the most important one I learned in seminary. So you're getting a free seminary education right here. The already and the not yet. As a world is is buckling under brokenness, Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God to that broken world. And Jesus said the kingdom has come And the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is within you, and you should be waiting for the kingdom. The cross and the empty tomb broke the power of sin and death, but the presence of sin and death remained. So I think there are often these um, already Christians. These are are the, the Tigger Christians. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. And then there are these not-yet-Christians. These are the, the Eeyore Christians. Is God good? Maybe. I don't know. I'm not so sure. But we need a healthy overlap between these two. 
Think of Venn diagram, right? Because we're not optimists, we're not pessimists, we're realists. Christ is risen from the dead, and that changes everything. Yet there is trouble, isn't there? We see it in this text. Verse 4, all trouble, any trouble, suffering, distress. Maybe the best word here is affliction. And when we are afflicted, what we need is comfort. Dr. Brian Kay reminded me this week as a therapist that attachment theory is the bid to one another for comfort. When a baby cries, it's a bid for comfort. When an adult cries, it's a bid for comfort, for presence, for healing. And the tension in the introduction to this letter to the church in Corinth is there is this affliction and this comfort. And I can pick at this by a quote, and I don't know where to attribute it, I think to a journalist in the middle of the 19th century who was describing the media, but Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, he he preached this quote in a sermon. He said, God's mission in the midst of a broken world is to, and here's the big idea, Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So Paul wants to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable because Jesus came to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. So I'm going to look at both of those for a moment in this text. First, to comfort the afflicted. Something terrible has happened here. And we see it in the opening lines. Paul's relationship with the Corinthians is a very complex, complex affair. In fact, um, Paul has made three different visits to Corinth. We learn this from the book of Acts. There are these emissaries that visited back and forth and they were carrying these letters that would be akin to our text messaging today when you see the three dots and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting for the response. You know, well, this happened over the course of seven years. And history tells us when you look at First and Second Corinthians and you piece it all together, there were actually probably five letters because First Corinthians talks about a previous letter, 1 Corinthians would have been the second letter if you're following along. Uh, the third letter was a severe letter that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians three times. And then the fourth letter is 2 Corinthians 1 through 9 where we are. And then the fifth letter is 10 through 13 that got sutured together. So if that history is clear as mud, here's the point. Scripture wasn't written by the elves in Rivendell, but by people who were in trouble, who were afflicted. Paul is writing about relational heartache and heartbreak, and that's what brought pen to paper. It was this desperate need for comfort, which is mentioned ten times in five verses. So how then do you comfort the afflicted? How do I comfort the afflicted? Well, look at verse 3 and 4, the the center of our passage this morning. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So how do we comfort the afflicted? Well, we see it here. Firstly, we have to receive the comfort from God so that we can then give that comfort to others. Comfort comes from God. Did you see it again? God of some comfort. No. God of all comfort. That word paraklesis means to comfort. It's where we describe the Holy Spirit as the parakaleo, the comforter. 
And so if attachment theory is a bid for comfort, then like Velcro, we are attaching to any and everything trying to find comfort, to be comforted. We attach ourselves to substances and to habits and to tired, worn-out relational scripts and emotional patterns. And many of us men attach ourselves to stoicism. It's been said that we uh, only have three emotions if we're men today, anger, guilt, and determination. It's really an escape. It's an escape from needing comfort. And to experience the comfort you need, you have to take your need for comfort to God. Your sorrow and your hurt. Paul goes deep into his sorrow and his hurt. In fact, he's going to go into list three different lists of his afflictions. He calls them dangers and persecutions and anxieties, shipwrecks, broken relationships, beatings. What's so hard for me, if I want to be honest with you this morning? Disappointment. I I would almost rather take on deep grief, I have categories for that, than disappointment. Death by a thousand cuts. For my loved ones to be disappointed, for me to be disappointed. Yet even with disappointment, I have to go deep with God in order to get better acquainted with Jesus, who was a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. In order to gain a clearer vision of what it means that Jesus suffered not just for us, but also with us. And at the cross, the the disappointment of the disciples, they they were crestfallen, weren't they? But they didn't say, shake it off, don't be disappointed. We've had a good run. No, you have to get to the very bottom of your sorrow and your hurt. And there, I really do believe you'll find God's comfort. So you receive that comfort, and then you give it to other people. Again, comfort, this word parakletos, it's a bit many-sided, and that's what I love about Scripture. Scripture is so rich and so textured, and maybe you've been following along over the last few years. There's this debate raging today between sympathy and empathy, and it's very binary, Um, Brene Brown has done a lot of great work on these matters for sure but I'd also say even her juxtaposition between the two isn't really necessary for the good work she's doing so don't get hung up about whether or not comfort is sympathy or empathy it's both it's being present and it's also bringing perspective so when you're comforting a friend when you're comforting someone in the church the first thing you need to do is you need to be present. You crawl down into that dark place with them and you say, hey, I am with you and you are not alone. You experience their perspective. I I love Brene Brown on this point. She says, being with someone in pain rarely involves starting a sentence with at least. At least he had a long life. At least she has a healthy child. Someone says that to me and My pain, I say, the least you can do right now is leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) To be present is to say, I don't know what to say right now, but I'm glad you told me about this. But secondly, as a Christian, when you bring comfort, you aren't just present, you also bring perspective. There's this little uh, phrase tucked away at the end of of verse 5 here, our comfort abounds through Christ. So when Jesus learned that one of his best friends, Lazarus, was sick and dying, 
He goes to Mary and Martha, who are also his friends, and he brings what? His truth and his tears. He weeps with Mary, and then he brings some perspective to Martha. He says, but I am the resurrection and the life. So we speak words which might give courage, new hope, new direction, new insights, which might alter the way the person that's suffering faces the next moment or the next day or the rest of their life. You know, sometimes in the midst of someone's grief and affliction and anguish, I'll say something after crying with them and praying with them. I'll say something like this. Hey, you know, one day you're going to be happy again. You'll even laugh again. Yes, the ache of this moment will find its way back to you. But by then, when it does, it will be the longing of a living hope for a resurrection that will bring family reunion and final restoration. So it's being present and bringing perspective. It meets people right where they are and it brings them right on the way to where they're strong enough to seek new possibilities and new ways forward. This is verse 6, the patient endurance that Paul is writing about and it's affixed to hope. And I wish I could stop here, but Jesus did not. For he also came, as I close, to afflict the comfortable. Did you see the beginning of verse 5? Uh, we share abundantly in the comfort. No, actually, it doesn't say that. We share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. So we invite Jesus to share in our sufferings, in our afflictions, but do we also share in the sufferings and afflictions of Christ? Well, what does that mean? A little theological underpinning again to the already and the not yet. It's sharing in the birth pains of the birth of a new world right in the midst of a broken one. So several years ago, I was at a party shortly after one of our daughters were born and I found myself when we were mingling, talking with my wife and three other women and they were talking about childbirth and I just sort of butted in. I was like, well, yeah, but you know, like when, when, when you're giving birth, if you're the dad and you're in the room, it's almost more difficult because you can't do anything. You know, swift elbow to the ribs by my wife, you know. But I remember being in there and one of the births was really painful and she got the epidural and just relaxed. I was like, doctor, I will have what she's having, you know. <laughs> but there is, a, there is a co-laboring in some respects that happens there. And, and that's what it means to um, be involved in the sufferings of Christ. You know, Corinth was on an isthmus. It was a major trade route, which made it very wealthy. It was very cosmopolitan. It hosted the biennial Isthmian Games, so you could think about like the ancient NFL. It attracted many visitors to the area, so the spending added to the prosperity of the city. Like Corinthians, we today, many of us have agency to buy comfort, to avoid suffering, to escape affliction, to opt out yet the history of the church is a history of stepping into the afflictions of Jesus for the sake of the world so in the 360s when Emperor Julian was was reigning and he was called by the Christian church the apostate he was trying to squash the Christian movement and he said I can't do anything about these people because they not only look after their own poor but ours as well 
And then in the 1300s, when the Black Plague came, and we got the idiom, let's run to the hills. That's what everyone did. They ran to the hills to escape the plague. Who stayed? The church, caring for the sick and the dying. And then with the British slave trade, who was it that finally said enough is enough? The church. Even the beautiful piece of this passage is in the letter to 1 Corinthians. Paul addresses it to the church in Corinth. But in 2 Corinthians, he addresses this one to the, letter, uh, to the church in Corinth and to Achaia. All the small towns and villages in southern Greece. Why? Because in just a few short years, the church had multiplied. Why? Because it was sharing in the afflictions of Jesus. So my time is up. I wish I had more time to apply creatively what this would look like. If you're in a community group, I would encourage your group towards this to begin to consider uh, what we buy, what we say, what we do, how we show up on the street or in the school or at the meeting. But here I just simply ask a question that hopefully you'll ask. In what ways is my life not comfortable because I follow Jesus? In what ways is my life not comfortable because I follow Jesus. For Christ came to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. So here's my concluding thought. If the lever is hope and the fulcrum for the Christian is resurrection, then when Jesus rose, even his friends didn't recognize him at first. And historians say, you know, this is really strange. These eyewitnesses did not recognize Jesus but then they did. It's odd. It's like knowing someone until they're about 14 years old, and then 20 years later, they're 34, and they see you on the street, and they say, oh, do you, do you remember me? Do you recognize me? And you say, well, no. Oh, oh, wait a second. Yeah, I do. See, Christian hope is not vague, The restoration for the whole world involves the resurrection of our very bodies because with all the imperfections of the mortal body, to take them all out, which God will do, it means you may be hard to recognize. But there's something so beautiful about this. Christians believe that we'll be in our resurrected bodies and we'll say, who are you? Oh yeah, that's you, Phil. That's you, Bart. That's you, Jan. I always knew you would be like this one day. See, that's the living hope. Comfort that even our afflictions are producing glorious new selves for a new world. Let's pray as we come to the table. Jesus, would you bind us to this hope because we are bound to you in your sufferings that in some strange way produce deep comfort for us. Uh, God, thank you for um, the great gift of as often as we remember this moment, we do so in remembrance of you. Uh, Would we sink deeply into those promises and assurances that we have through your life's work and death and resurrection? And would you make us a people that uh, take the risk of being uncomfortable for your sake? It's in your name we pray. Amen.